Today is the uh, December Combined Journal Club for Toxicology and Pediatrics, and we're going to review the 14 articles entitled Are One or Two Dangerous X Exposures in Toddlers? And up first is uh, Matt David to talk about tricyclic antidepressants. Perfect. So, reviewed an uh, article like Zane was talking about on TCAs. Um, talking about if one or two is dangerous or potentially uh, fatal in toddlers. Um, so, you know, a couple decades ago, TCAs were kind of the number one go-to antidepressant. They've largely been replaced by SSRIs and other atypical antidepressants, but they are making a comeback today kind of as adjuncts for neuropathic pain um, and multiple other indications like migraines um, and other pain syndromes. So we're definitely will be continuing to, to see them. Um, basically, this article attempts to look at kids less than six, saying is one or two pills um, potentially toxic. Um, just to start off with, though, the article did uh, go into a little bit of the pharmacokinetics and pathophys. And basically, in terms of uh, pharmacokinetics, the real big thing to, to know is that they do have very rapid absorption. Um, and so we'll see um, kind of the most severe symptomatology within six hours. And then in terms of pathophysiology, you guys will remember from uh, the tox rotation, kind of zines, uh, seven deadly sins of TCAs. So, you know, number one, they block sodium channels, leading to prolonged QRS uh, and ventricular dysrhythmias. Um, they're anti-muscarinic. They are antihistamines, so they're going to cause sedation. They um, are GABA antagonists, le causing, uh, leading to seizures. They block potassium channels, uh, which prolong the QT, uh, and, and they're alpha block, uh, blockers as well, causing hypotension. Um, so, obviously, uh, good reasons to uh, have significant tox toxicity. Um, so kind of jumping into what we actually want to know, you have a, uh, you know, a toddler, um, here they're kind of defining uh, kids as less than six, but can, you, can we get toxic with, with one or two um, pills? So the first um, kind of review that they looked at was a, a review of poison center data, which um, is not always the, the best data because you you never really know exactly how much they've been exposed to or if they've been exposed uh, at all. So you need to kind of take the poison center data with, with a grain of salt. But the fatalities that they did see in kids less than six um, occurred with ingestions from anywhere from five tabs of 100 milligrams of disipramine to 25 tabs of 50 milligrams of disipramine. So, you know, five tabs potentially being fatal. Uh, in the poison center data. And then in review of kind of, you know, whole uh, literature-wide review, um, they did find that the lowest fatal dose was 15 mg per kg. Um, and if we're talking about a 10 kilo kid, that's uh, basically one tab of 150 uh, milligrams. And then kind of in that same review, um, the lowest significant morbidity uh, was about six migs per kg. So again, um, you know, well, um, you can easily get that in, in one pill. Um, 
uh, of a TCA. Um, and then kind of there's been several other um, kind of publications looking at um, kind of the same very topic and uh, basically all of them have showed that less than five megs per kg um, in kids um, have not led to significant morbidity or mortality. So we kind of have, um, at least in their recommendations and our recommendations, um, less than five megs per kg in an asymptomatic um, kid you know, we can keep it, keep at home and, and, and observe. Um, the studies have shown that, you know, six megs per kg can make you toxic, uh, can cause morbidity, um, and that's easily within uh, one pill for, for a kid. And then, um, you know, is, uh, 15 megs per kg is kind of the lowest um, ingested dose that causes mortality. And so, again, that's within one or two pills for a kid. So, uh, in terms of TCAs, yes, I would say one or two pills could um, get a, you know, a, a one-year-old, a 10-kilo kid sick. Uh, you guys have any questions about TCAs? All right, we'll keep going here then. All right, so... So for TCA, it's certainly plausible if you take the largest tablet and the smallest child and you put them together, one pill is potentially fatal. It's interesting, only three of the nine tricyclics that are available in the market have ever produced a fatality in children, and that's amitriptyline, disipamipramine, and imipramine. All the other ones have never been associated with a fatality, and if those fatalities, there's only been a handful of about a dozen or so. Kind of go in order of drug therapy classes, sticking with drugs for psychiatric uses. We're going to bring up uh, Yvonne next. He'll talk about the phenothiazine class of medications. All right, so the phenothiazines, um, this class of drugs includes both the antiemetics as well as the antipsychotics, but the, this, the discussion here is really more focused on the antipsychotics as the antiemetics haven't really been shown to be toxic. So with the antipsychotics, they're really divided into low, medium, high potency based on the amount of drug needed to treat schizophrenia. And this is important because low potency drugs are typically given in higher doses to patients and they produce more side effects such as sedation, hypotension, and anticholinergic symptoms. The high-potency drugs, on the other hand, are prescribed in lower strengths, which produce more dystonic reactions but less side effects. So what are these side effects? Namely, um, they act through a sodium channel blockade, so you can see the long QRS, prolonged QTC. They can block alpha-adrenergic, muscarinic, histamine receptors, and calcium channels as well. Um, and then the neurologic effects that you see, really the chief one is sedation, which is universal in toxicity, but you can also see a lowered seizure threshold, respiratory depression, um, extrapyramidal symptoms, and coma. Um, oh, you could also get neuroleptic malignant syndrome in less than 1% as well. So um, looking at the cases that they saw, they listed about 12 cases of like reported serious toxicity in kids of which um, six, six, five resulted in death. Uh, most of these were in kids, I think, five years and under. 
Um, and some of these were actually with pretty low doses of medication, um, chiefly with chlorpromazine, which is one of these low-potency uh, antipsychotics that are given in higher doses. Um, the treatment for this is largely supportive. You can give activated charcoal if they present early enough, um, and then you treat everything else as you would, you know, uh, the bradycardia, avionodal blockade, um, seizures. You just treat with benzos, hypertension with pressors as needed. Um, and anyways, looking at these deaths, um, most of them from chlorpromazine resulted from cerebral and pulmonary edema. And again, really exposure to chlorpromazine was the main cause of death in kids under the age of five with doses as low as just 200 milligrams. So as to whether or not um, it's plausible, um, it's certainly plausible that one to two tablets could kill. But again, there, from 1986 to 2003, there were thousands of potential exposures that were reported and really just five or six deaths. So. <laughs> and I'll just stay up here. Since right, I have sure so again, again, a plausible, really just a single drug, which is propromazine, I'll use the generic name, which is Thorazine, which isn't used very much anymore, except perhaps for hiccups um, as a single injection. <laughs> so we're not seeing a lot of people uh, taking, you know, Thorazine at home. So although these drugs clearly cause problems in kids, the chance of them actually being fatal is very low. A lot of these drugs have now been replaced by the atypical antipsychotics, and two of the first ones that were on the market were clozapine and elantapine, and they were in the time frame when these series of articles are written. So I'll let you continue with yeah. those. Mm -hmm. All right, so on to the atypical antipsychotics. So these produce a toxidrome of CNS depression and anticholinergic effects. The nice thing about atypical antipsychotics, as most are aware, that there's really less extrapyramidal effects in adults, but this is actually not the case in children necessarily because EPS effects are really still reported in kids. Um, just to talk about clozapine first, um, its main side effect that we probably remember from like the step one or something is that it causes a rare fatal agranulocytosis. This is an idiosyncratic reaction. It really occurs within the first eight to 12 weeks of treatment, so usually not an issue to think about when you're talking about the toddler that just took a couple tablets. And clozapine is really prescribed only in refractory schizophrenia. Um, so it reaches its peak plasma concentrations pretty rapidly within one to four hours. Um, and it's metabolized in the liver by cytochrome P450, and its inflammation <coughs> half-life is about 16 hours. It's very lipophilic with a large volume of distribution, making um, dialysis not really useful for treatment. Um, there are five reports of toxicity in small children. They were 21 months to five years of age, and they took about anywhere from like um, half a tablet, so that would be 50 milligrams to like 200 milligrams of clozapine. And all of them had neurologic symptoms with myoclonus, poor tongue control, decreased tone, ataxia, rigidity, nystagmus, torticollis, or uptendation. So just one of those things. Um, their measured levels um, were considered therapeutic in adults, so that's not very useful in determining treatment. There were no fatal exposures for olanzapine sorry, for clozapine between 2001 to 2002. Um, and, like, if you saw EPS, they were really, really resolved with Benadryl. So treatment is really supportive care for these patients as well. Um, 
Sorry, and then olanzapine, which is also known as Zyprexa, has clinical manifestations very similar to clozapine, except that sometimes you can see opioid-like pinpoint pupils, and then patients can have somnolence that's not responsive to Narcan. There, I'm going to try to get in with the other folks there. Okay. Just feel free to keep going. All right, I'll just continue. Um, the peak plasmic concentration is a little bit slower to be reached um, with olanzapine as compared to clozapine occurs in about five to six hours. The elimination half-life is 30 hours, and the volume of distribution is also very large. So again, dialysis is not useful. And then there are six reports of pediatric ingestions um, with somnolence and lethargy, aggressive irritable behavior, and meiosis seen, and airway protection was required in three of those cases. So again, whether or not it's dangerous, it's plausible, since some of these patients did require intubation. And I think the one if I'm remembering correctly, the one death that was reported in this article was in a patient who was intubated but then had um, pneumonia, aspiration pneumonia, and that was the cause of death. So if these patients present to the ED, they recommend that you observe them for six hours if they're symptomatic in any way. And then you can give supportive care in charcoal if they present within two hours. And, you know, that's about it. Thanks. Just summing up on the on the psych drugs, there certainly the classic tricyclic antidepressants potentially uh, could be toxic to the point of fatal. So we were going to watch those for six hours, and you'll see a recurring theme of six hours observation. As we'll note with many of these, you never can tell if the kid really got into the pill, their pill just was missing, and no one knew where it went. So if they're asymptomatic after six hours, uh, many of these kids can go home. Um, which allows it for these pediatric observation units to, um, you know, exist and clear these kids without admitting them and flying them across the state to be admitted to an ICU. So we're going to turn our attention to the cardiac drugs now, and uh, we're going to bring up Dave to talk about the next couple. I think we'll start with uh, the beta blockers um, in children. All right, so I guess first is the beta blockers. We don't see them a whole lot in peds, although the adult world uses beta blockers all the time, but theoretically kids could get into a pill or two of grandma's little pill box. And so in the beta blocker study, they really looked at kids less than six was their kind of target population. And the most common beta blocker that is associated with overdoses and toxicity is propanolol. Um, obviously it affects beta receptors, but one of the other important things is it can block sodium channels, which can mess with uh, heart rhythms even more. So the morbidity and mortality from beta blocker overdoses is usually cardiovascular side effects. And the symptoms are usually seen within about two hours of uh, ingesting the pill. Um, kind of like Zane said, asymptomatic kids usually can feel pretty good if uh, they've been completely asymptomatic for six hours. Um, and what they did is they looked back at a few studies. Some had looked at poison center data. Some had just looked at other kind of uh, retrospective case series. And in one of them, um, they found that over a 20-year period, there was a five-fold increase in uh, beta blocker ingestions in kids less than six. So we're not seeing it infrequently. Um, another study found that over 40 years, in kids less than six, there was no deaths of beta blocker ingestions in kids, regardless of the dose that they took. Um, however, in, I don't know if it was that same study or a different case report, but a seven-year-old with Down syndrome had gotten into a huge dose of a beta blocker, like his serum level was like 2,500 or something, 
Um, and that kid was hypotensive, had a hypoglycemia with a glucose of zero, and died. Um, in another case series, there was 380 cases of kids less than seven who got into beta blockers. Some of them were a little bit bradycardic. They had borderline blood pressures but didn't need any therapies for it and were a little bit tired. So the author said it was really clinically insignificant findings from all of those ingestions. And then there was another um, case report of a three-year-old that they highlighted who got into 150 milligrams of propanolol. Um, seven hours after the ingestion, had some seizures, went into a secondary heart block and had a glucose of 14 um, and had a pretty poor outcome as well. So um, basically, I think the take-home from all of the studies that they reviewed is that in one or two pills, it's pretty unlikely that you're going to have significant side effects. However, the one thing that you should um, think about and the one thing that's been shown in most of the studies is hypoglycemia is a real risk. So checking their glucose and keeping a close eye on that. Obviously, the more pills that you take, the worse it is. Um, and then the lipophilic agents are the highest risk ones, so that's propanolol. Atenolol apparently doesn't really have much of a risk. And then the only other thing that they threw in there was sodalol, um, which I don't think I've ever seen a kid get into, um, can cause some prolongation of your QT. So that's just kind of a unique thing to that agent, I guess, because of some of its uh, potassium effects. So if it's confirmed, busted, or plausible, uh, I'll go between busted and plausible because you need to keep an eye on glucose. Yeah, I think, I think this is one where I think that they're kind of busted. They looked and they looked. These drugs have been on the market for over 30 years, and there's never been a pediatric death with one or two pills. So um, a surprise to, to many of us. I'm not saying these kids don't need to be observed and monitored. We certainly do have thresholds to send them in for each of the different the multiple beta blockers available, but the risk of them dying and needing to be innovated in an ICU are extremely low. However, for calcium channel blockers, yeah. setting it up, it's not going to be busted. Um, so calcium channel blockers, uh, the effects of calcium channel blockers, or the effects really of calcium in your body is uh, smooth muscle contraction. It has plenty of effects in your uh, SA node of your heart, um, and then it can stimulate your pancreas and have effects on insulin, just kind of a basic uh, background on it. The two that they really, really focused on were verapamil and ifedipine um, from an ingestion standpoint. Verapamil in particular has an effect on smooth muscle contraction and more of a, an effect on the heart rhythm than ifedipine does, which is mainly affecting um, your smooth muscle. Um, clinical effects from it are kind of similar to beta blockers in the fact that it's kind of cardiovascular side effects is what you worry about, bradycardia and hypotension. Um, they did kind of go into some background on, you know, if these kids come in, should we be giving them charcoal and kind of what are some acute treatments? And they showed some studies that there was like two case reports of some kids who had gotten charcoal and they actually got worse after they got the charcoal. And the thought behind it was um, the charcoal basically kind of slowed down their GI transit time, which then increased absorption and increased their levels of calcium channel blockers. I, there was only two case reports, so I don't know how much really to put into that, but really they were saying, you know, kids who come in unstable, the main mainstay of treatment is IV fluids. You can think about IV calcium. If they were horrible and super critically ill, you could think about high-dose insulin, which can increase your cardiac contractility, but it seemed like a lot of that was kind of uh, was controversial. Um, so there was a large case series that looked back at a bunch of calcium channel blocker toxicities. There was like 300. Um, and the side effects from that range from cardiovascular to neurologic to GI side effects. And so there weren't a whole lot of take-home points from that. But then 
they went on and, like I said, broke it up into nifedipine and verapamil and went through the literature on that. So nifedipine in particular, like I said, has more of a smooth muscle um, contraction effect. And in their review of um, all of the literature, there was actually nine deaths from nifedipine. Three were in toddlers who had only taken one or two pills of nifedipine. I, I didn't see a specific dose, but they did specifically say it was one or two pills. They saw the toxicity within two hours, um, and one of the most profound effects was the hypotension, which is what you would expect from nifedipine. Verapamil, when they went back through the literature on that, um, they found five deaths um, in kids. At least one child only took one tab. Um, a few of the others, they were a little bit more unsure about how much they had taken, but um, the big kind of clinical effects they saw from that is kids came in uh, completely altered um, and severely bradycardic. And then they, uh, they threw in diltiazem as well. They looked back just real quickly on that, and there was one, do one death from that too. They didn't know the, the dose the kid had taken, so I don't know if it was one or two pills or exactly what it was, but that kid kind of came in just like the verapamil case where he was bradycardic um, and altered. So they go through maybe some kind of toxic doses and stuff, but for me as a pediatric person, I'll probably forget those tomorrow, to be completely honest with you. So I think for me, the takeover from the study is that calcium channel blockers are pretty dangerous, um, and one or two pills definitely could kill you. Um, and so I'm gonna, we'll probably call the talk or the poison center on all these ingestions, but it's one, I think, medicine that we should be concerned about and um, have kind of a, of a high threshold to be worried when we see kids coming in with that. So I would say that is confirmed. That's the first, first one on our list to really, truly show toxicity with what, one or two pills so far. Yes. And, and it's interesting because in, in the adults, we always kind of generally lump the calcium channel blockers and beta blockers in the same sort of thought process and how we treat them. But in kids, apparently one or two beta blockers seem to be reasonably well tolerated where one or two calcium channel blockers quite the opposite recommendations is to watch them for six hours if it's a immediate release product and if then at the end of six hours they're asymptomatic they can go home however for the sustained release products which there are numerous in the calcium channel blocker category it's at least 12 if not 24 hours before you can clear them so these are the ones i think you're going to need to admit to the uh, picu and um watch closely their vital signs and mental status and glucose as well. So while Rob Cloutier is coming down here to talk about the next couple, I'm going to introduce those. One of them is probably our leading cause of at least consults for pediatric ingestions, which is clonidine. Oh, you took that one? Okay, so Beach is going to come in and Last minute substitution. <laughs> Designated. Uh, okay, so uh, I looked at the article on clonidine and imidazoline, which was a new one for me. Imidazolines are the topical preparations of uh, a drug in the same class. Um, the, the one that's, I think, immediately familiar is like Visine. The spoiler for those is that they're not generally. Uh, a little bit of that is not going to kill anybody. If a kid drinks several mLs of it, they, they can become symptomatic, though, and they should be seen. Um, but clonidine is one that we see a lot of. And what, what was interesting, actually, looking at this article is uh, this was initially developed as a nasal decongestant. 
And what they noticed when they were testing it is, oh, it has these side effects of bradycardia and hypotension. And so they did not approve it as a nasal decongestant, uh, but they did approve it or start using it as an antihypertensive. Um, so clonidine, the other thing that it's used for, and probably part of why we on the PED side see it more and more, is that it's been used increasingly for ADHD. Um, so you see lots of kids who come in who are on it for that. And if you look at the epidemiology of uh, calls and over or accidental ingestions, um, it's been increasing in part for that reason. Um, also, if you look at, say, even 15, 16 years ago, when you ask parents for toddler or young kid ingestion, whose medication it was, it used to be grandparents, and now it's another kid's medication or even that kid's medication, right? So, so we are seeing more of it. Um, the mechanism of action for clonidine is it's an alpha-2 agonist. Um, interestingly, uh, it initially, and how Visine works, is it causes peripheral vasoconstriction by acting on peripheral smooth muscle, but it causes central um, vasodilation and bradycardia. So that's, that's sort of where, um, where it takes effect. Uh, obviously, then, the major toxicities from it are... Uh, hypotension, bradycardia, the other commonly seen uh, toxicities are all altered mental status. This paper looks at um, several case series. Uh, I mean, there are seven listed here. The consistently, the most common symptom of clonidine ingestion is altered mental status. I think the ones that we worry the most about are hypotension and bradycardia. Those are somewhat commonly seen. Um, there, there is no minimum dose of clonidine that is, that is safe, uh, according to which patient is guaranteed to be asymptomatic. They said that you can see um, severe symptoms in doses as small as 0 0.009 milligrams per kilo in one particular study. Um, although, generally speaking, you see minimal symptoms in patients ingesting uh, 0 0.01 milligram per kilo, which, you know, clonidine comes in 0 0.1, 0 0.2 milligram type pills. If you're an infant, a uh, one-year-old, it's about 10 kilos, right? So that's one of those tabs. Uh, bradycardia and hypotension, you see, in those generally ingesting 0 0.01 to 0 0.02, and respiratory depression in those uh, with a, who ingest a dose greater than 0 0.02 milligrams per kilo. Um, so how serious is a clonidine, a clonidine ingestion of one to two tabs? A few things that they say, and there, this happens a lot. There, um, this is a pretty common ingestion. In 2001, the Poison Center uh, Toxic Exposure Surveillance System reported 1,438 exposures in kids less than the age of six. Um, and they looked this. The one particular study looked at 10,000 ingestions between 93 and 99. So this happens. We have a large N for how dangerous this ingestion is. Um, and the, the reality is it tends to be not that serious, um, or sorry, not that fatal, I should say. A lot of these kids end up being symptomatic, but they described um, in this period from uh, 1983 to 2001, there was one clonidine-associated death in a kid under six years old. Um, and that kid took an unknown amount of clonidine and they were a 23-month-old. They had bradycardia followed by car cardiac arrest during intubation. 
Um, there have been a few reported deaths in the literature, but again, most of those seem to be with larger doses. One of those uh, illustrative examples is a three-year-old who took 20 to 30 tablets. How they got that much, I have no idea, but um, it was a lot. Um, so, I mean, that's a pretty good summary, I think. Um, overall, the recommendations based on this data and this paper is that if you have a kid who takes greater than a recommended therapeutic dose of clonidine like for ADHD, they should be seen and evaluated by a physician because they can be symptomatic. Um, you know, if they're symptomatic at all, then they should probably be admitted and observed. If symptoms are going to develop, it looks like it happens typically within the first four hours, though as far out as six hours has been described, and then the duration is like up to 24 hours. Um, so I don't know, I guess as far as this rubric goes, I would say between busted and plausible. All right, yes, we see lots of clonidine, and, and since this article is written, its close cousin has been on the rise, too, which is guapacine, which is another ADHD drug that causes the same uh, problems, um, but not so much with the topical visines, nafcons, those tend to be well-tolerated. So again, the six-hour rule seems to apply, the risk of death seems to be reasonably low with one or two tablets, but larger doses can cause serious problems. So now we're going to bring or put you up here to talk about not so much a pill, but a liquid or a topical that we use a lot in uh, pediatrics, right? Parents use at home, talking about the topical analgesics, lidocaine and benzocaine. So, in looking at this article, it's pretty surprising because I, I sort of feel like over the course of my training that I've seen tended to get pretty riled up about lidocaine. We don't see it all that often as an acute ingestion or as an acute toxicity. So essentially, you break down your lidocaines into amides and esters. Amides sort of having being the group that has the stuff that we're most familiar with that we use clinically every day that are typically the, the canes, lidocaine, um, prilocaine, and dibucaine are the three that I found the most important to use here. Lidocaine, obvious reasons, but we use it for for most of our local anesthetic purposes. Prilocaine, which is one of the most active ingredients that you would find in EMLA. And Dibucaine, the reason I'm bringing that one up is we don't see it very often, but it is ridiculously potent, and it is most often found in hemorrhoidal creams. And the reason it's also important is it's 10 times more potent than any of the other amides. And it's, that's if there's one of these, these agents that I would say that we should pay attention to in the amide class, it would be, um, and I would put under confirmed, would probably be the Dibucane formulations for one simple reason, just that it's 10 times potency, and there have been seven deaths over 17 years that have been uh, um, linked to the lidocaine type uh, medications, and three of them were from Dibucane. So I would say I would pay strong attention to those. So mechanism of action among the amide anesthetics, they are typically sodium channel blockers, so they can tend to have, what they do is they block sodium channels and prevent the propagation of an action potential. This has its most potent effects in areas of cardiovascular toxicity and CNS toxicity, um, which, you know, two things that we obviously need and that kind of fall under the primary survey a little bit. So when you do have patients who are going to have significant toxicity from these things, you have to realize that you're mostly going to be dealing with either 
um, seizures or potentially cardiac dysrhythmias. Um, and one of the other things that could potentially happen too is a methemoglobinemia. Uh, this tends to be sort of a little bit more associated with the esters when we talk about things like benzocaine, which are the teething gels. Uh, when we're talking about the topical anesthetics like EMLA, one of the things that they were discussing I felt that was somewhat interesting was the uh, fact that they did some studies on EMLA and they were looking at methemoglobin levels of just patients who'd had EMLA on for what we would consider a therapeutic period of time to, to prepare them for a procedure. And they found that their methemoglobin levels were still, got elevated even with just topical use that under routine circumstances. Well, that was kind of interesting. I'm not sure that it's something that I would get too concerned about unless somebody were to get symptomatic. One of the problems with looking at the preparations that, that all the various lidocanes come in that we would be worried about in our clinical environment typically are the viscous lidocanes and the gels that are used for teething. And one of the things I found complicated trying to interpret this is it was very hard to get a sense of how many milligrams per kilogram is going to be dangerous because the way that they were measuring a lot of the levels of toxicity amongst the patients who were truly significantly ill, as in seizures, cardiac dysrhythmias, what happened is um, they were measuring um, lid serum lidocaine levels, which is, I don't know about you guys, I like, can't remember the last time I ordered a lidocaine level, and I can't imagine getting that back in a very timely fashion that would allow me to make um, any types of clinical decisions. Most importantly, though, in terms of treatment of these patients, it's largely supportive. Um, it'll typically involve potentially airway support. It might involve treating seizures. Um, if you're treating seizures, it'd be a good idea to avoid medications that we tend to use for frontline seizure prophylaxis, such as um, Dilantin and phenobarbital, um, just because there's some cardiac activity that might be involved with those medications. So we end up going back to what I like to think of, you know, the uh, my favorite toxic bomb, which is the combination of bicarbonate and um, Ativan. Have you guys thought about putting that in just in one amp? <laughs> Calling it Atacarb or something like that? Because, uh, you know, you, it goes back to sort of your basics in terms of, I think, treating a lot of toxic ingestions, right? Benzos and bicarb. You, you pretty much cover a lot of important toxins if you do that. You treat a lot of stuff. If you, <laughs> if you can just cover those. But the other thing to remember too is, one thing that I took away from this is that pretty much if patients are going to become symptomatic from this, from the amides, is it's probably gonna happen in four hours. So if I had a patient come in with a viscous lidocaine ingestion, I think that they deserve to be observed for four hours. If they don't get, to, if they don't get symptomatic at that point, I think it seems fairly safe to consider um, uh, discharging them. If it's a benzocaine, however, those patients are more likely to have, be symptomatic from methemoglobinemia and not necessarily from um, the other issues that we were discussing before because their mechanism of action is a little bit different. So it's important to make sure that A, you understand what are they, we're talking an amide ingestion or an ester, and then the next thing to remember is that find out whether it was dibucane or not dibucane. And if it's dibucane, that's the, those are the patients I would be watching for a very significant period of time to make absolutely sure that that wasn't what they ingested because of the, of the canes, that would clearly be the most deadly. So I would have to say, I would confirm for dibucane. Um, I would kind of say busted for the other ones as long as you're patient enough to wait for four hours.
Thanks. So uh, a couple of things. This paper was written before uh, we started using interlipid. And probably one of the important caveats, I think, in, in treatment is if you've had a significant lidocaine or dibucaine overdose and they're seizing and they're refractory to what Rob just told us, is interlipid has, has been used in the more recent era. Um, that we did have a viscous xylocaine used therapeutically or told to be used therapeutically case that died in the last year that we're aware of. So this is not something you want to send people home with for their cold sores or um, post-tonsillectomy or anything else along those lines. As far as the Dibucane, one of my favorite posters that was ever uh, written at a uh, toxicology conference was, I can't believe it's not toothpaste, was the title. Um, they talked about all these things that people brush their teeth with that was sitting on the bathroom cabinet and hemorrhoid cream and birth control, thing, all sorts of things. But that was one, one of them. So because the two take-home messages is these can be pretty toxic pretty rapidly and don't overuse this xylocaine as an oral agent or um, be wary if they seize that you might need interlipid. Next up, changing gears a little bit, our pain control is opioids, of which there are many, but we're going to bring Jillian up to talk about that. All right, so let's start with the opioid paper. Um, so, so these, as we know, just a quick review, these are meds that work on the, some specific receptors um, in the brain. Um, mu, Kappa, and Delta. Mu is the one that we actually think about uh, the most. It's the most clinically significant. And that's uh, the receptor at which we will have the effects of analgesia, which is what we're looking for, respiratory depression, and CNS depression. Um, the other things that we consider are um, GI dysmotility. We think about constipation in patients who take opioids and then inhibition of the cough reflex. Um, and so what we're looking for in patients are mental status changes. In some meds, seizures at very high doses, and these are with propoxyphene and meparidine, which we don't see um, much of, so um, unlikely to see that. Um, one we may see uh, is tramadol, which is an interesting one. I think um, this is one that, that may at least for a while have been prescribed a little bit more often because we we're trying to stay away from opioids we perceived as harder opioids, and so... Some of us were prescribing tramadol for things in the, in the ED. Um, but a, one clinical manifestation is seizures in, in patients who are prescribed these. So we have to be very careful about using this. And tramadol has an active metabolite, O-dimethyltramadol, that has a long half-life of five to nine hours. So as we go through this paper, we should think about tramadol slightly differently uh, than the other opioids. Um, this paper begins with a, they sort of go by section, and the first one is, is codeine. Um, and there's a, a retrospective review of 430 kids, little kids, aged 1 to 6, after expu acute exposure to codeine. And those with ingestions that were under 5 mg per kg um, had really no clinically significant sy uh, symptoms. And so that's sort of our cutoff for, for codeine um, in terms of where we become concerned. Um, there was a subset of kids that did get symptomatic, um, the smallest ingestion in that group was 5 mg per kg, and the highest was 12 mg per kg. So again, that's 5 mg per kg is where we're starting to think we should uh, perhaps worry about that ingestion. Um, there's a case report of a 17-day-old who received 18 milligrams of codeine over a two-day period for cold-like um, symptoms. 
that child uh, became very symptomatic and ended up recovering. Um, and then there's another case report of a 31-month-old who ingested 10 mg per kg of codeine and developed respiratory depression that required a naloxone drip, um, but otherwise recovered. So really, um, no deaths were documented from codeine. So that I, I would say this is this one is somewhat busted in very small kids. If you get over five, you know, if you get into that five mg per kg range for a tiny person, that may not be that much codeine. Um, but in general, it's really only over five mg per kg where we start to worry. Methadone, um, there are multiple case reports of methadone ingestions in kids as low as five milligrams. And because these pills come as low as five milligrams, methadone is one where one pill can potentially be concerning. Um, this is supplied generally as a five or 10 milligram tablet or a liquid concentration. Um, and probably met, many of us have seen these in, in the ED. So these kids can get into a dose and the, the bottom line with methadone is that the symptoms are long-acting. So patients are taking these once a day, for example, and so you have a kid get into one of mom's methadone pills, and uh, the kids can be symptomatic for uh, 12 hours to almost three days post-ingestion. And so these are the kids that you may want to consider a drip on because you're going to be chasing them with naloxone for a long time. Tramadol. Um, uh, Spiller et al. reported 126 cases of tramadol exposures, 15 of which were in kids under six. So in looking at those, they did have um, uh, some kids that got symptomatic, but none of that happened in kids who took under 10 mg per kg. So the bottom line with tramadol really is that um, the, the dose where kids get symptomatic is 10 mg per kg. Um, and again, that's the one where we want to just think about seizures, even in adults who were prescribing this for therapeutically. In, uh, among other opioids, uh, there's a report of a three-year-old, a 26-kilo kid who died after getting multiple doses of a cough syrup um, that ended up containing a total of 15 milligrams of hydrocodone. Um, that was over the course of nine hours. So that'd even be, be a, a sort of an adult dose, um, and that, that resulted in a death. And then there was a fatality in an eight-year-old who took an overdose of morphine. It was somewhere between 2.7 and 5.4 mg per kg. Uh, so, so certainly things to, to think about once you're getting into kind of the adult range of doses. Um, and then it, with, for fentanyl, um, there's, again, we're just, it's tough. We don't have great data, but we're looking at a couple of, of case reports. We have a two-year-old kid that had agonal respirations after the inadvertent application of a 50 uh, mic fentanyl patch um, and who uh, reversed with naloxone. Um, and then there was a child who developed respiratory depression after um, a family member gave that child a patch. So again, for, for a patch, an adult patch in a child, if you consider that a dose, even though it's designed to be given over, you know, administered over long, uh, a long time, that is certainly uh, potentially dangerous. So that's one where one dose could be considered dangerous. So, so the bottom line for these, so if you have a kid who comes in with symptoms, um, you're going to manage their airway, you can give naloxone, and if the kid's symptomatic, they should probably be admitted to an intensive care setting. Um, kids who are symptomatic who take an extended release formulation or, for example, getting into a parent's methadone, um, they may need um, a continuous infusion of naloxone, so that's where we might consider that. Um, and uh, for asymptomatic patients, if you observe those 
uh, you want to figure out how to long to observe those kids. And the problem is that we have a lot of different opioids and we're not quite sure how long to recommend. Um, the bottom line in this section is that we're not sure if it's two or four or six hours. So what we keep coming back to is a six-hour OBS. Um, so I think it's reasonable. Um, this is just my opinion, but you, if you do a six-hour OBS in a kid, um, that you should probably be able to see symptoms at that point and be able to make an appropriate disposition. Again, where the bottom line is if they're symptomatic, they come in and they could probably be dispositioned unless you're worried about a long-acting agent. So for coding, the bottom line is watch for, for the four to six hour that we normally recommend if they're over five mg per kg. For methadone, it's a little bit longer, remembering that this is a longer acting agent, so we'd probably at, at least that six hour mark that we typically recommend, and we might consider admitting for 24 hour odds, just acknowledging that these are longer acting, and that the kid may want uh, need a naloxone drip. Um, so with opioids, it's a little bit different because we have to think about the age of the kid, the size of the kid, how much they took, what time of day is it, like is it, is it bedtime when this often happens and they're going to get sleepy anyway and it's going to be tough to watch them at home, and then how reliable are the parents um, to watch the kid at home. So those are all factors that we have to take into consideration. Tramadol, remember this is the, the over 10 mg per kg one, so if they're taken over 10 mg per kg or we're concerned they may have, we want to watch them for at least that four to six hour time period. And there's actually a really nice table in this in this um, paper, table three, that basically tells you what the equivalent dose to five mg per kg of oral codeine is, and if we use that as our cutoff, kind of we can use this table as sort of a guideline um, to think about who needs to be watched and who can stay at home. So if you have an asymptomatic kid who's under the equivalent of five mg per kg of codeine, um, you, can, you can think about watching them at home. Um, and then the exceptions are methadone, which gets six hours, um, tramadol, which you can bump up to 10 mg per kg before you worry, propoxyphene, which gets six hours of OBS because of its long half-life, which we probably won't see, and then extended release uh, medications, uh, versions of any medications, oxycontin, methadone, uh, methadone long-lasting morphine, those should probably be have a long OBS or an admission for 24 hours. Right. So some, some in that group are worrisome. Again, the paper was written in the mid-2000s, and we've seen an explosion in oxycontins and a variety of long-acting preparations, and so those haven't really been sensibly studied yet and certainly make us worried, as worried as methadone and would probably uh, warrant a much longer observation time if the kid starts getting sleepy. But clearly we're sending a fair number of these in. And that table, if anyone wants to say one article from the series, that table is pretty good as far as recommendations for who to send in and who to uh, possibly observe at home. The other medication that sometimes gets thrown in, and certainly this was trained years ago, this was always listed as a one of those worrisome one pill can kill, and it was prescribed for diarrhea, so it always made it unusual for why that would be, but it's actually an opioid in disguise. So tell us about uh, Lomotil, which isn't around much anymore. Julia. All right. So Lomotil is, is diphenoxylate atropine. Um, and it's, it, this is one of the ones that's typically on the, the quote, no pill can kill list. Um, each tab, uh, or five cc's of, of a, the syrup formulation contains 2.5 milligrams of diphenoxylate hydrochloride and 0.025 milligrams of atropine. 
um, that diphenoxalate is a, a synthetic um, phenylpiperidine um, that's related to meperidine or Demerol. And uh, the, the problem with atropine in this formulation is it prolongs, it delays gastric emptying, so you can have prolonged effects. And atropine is added um, to the formulation to de decrease, uh, decrease the abuse potential, the sort of your buzzkill effect there. So at clinical features then are going to be potentially atropine toxicity. Um, so you get uh, anticholinergic effects. And then from your opioid or your diphenoxylate, your opioid toxidrome. So anticholinergic, you may get um, tachycardic and flushed and red and dry and have urinary retention and potentially some CNS excitement or delirium. And then the opioid features, obviously meiosis, lethargy, CNS, uh, de uh, uh, depression and respiratory depression. Um, and the problem is that you can have symptoms prolonged for up to 24 hours because the atropine is slowing everything down. And so you're going to have the delayed, um, delayed gastric emptying. So um, when you look through series of exposures of, of these medications, it's really after repetitive or numerous doses of um, Lomatil that you have symptoms. And most of the time that was just minor symptoms, like a patient who just comes in with meiosis, for example. The smallest documented quantity that actually resulted in coma and respiratory depression in young children was six to eight tablets. Um, so that pretty much puts us in, uh, in the busted range here. Um, so some things to think about. Because you have delayed gastric emptying, um, you could certainly consider uh, decontamination with charcoal, depending on the patient's mental status um, and depending on how quickly you're seeing the patient. So if you have an alert patient with a protected area, airway, you could do charcoal. You could do naloxone to reverse the opioid toxicity. Um, if you have a patient who's coming in who's symptomatic, so showing signs of opioid toxicity or anticholinergic toxidrome, they should probably be admitted <coughs> to the PICU um, just because they'll probably have prolonged effects and, they, and potentially could have severe effects. Um, if you have a suspected significant ingestion, and again, per this literature, is six to eight tablets and so not just one or two pills, then those kids should probably be observed for at least 12 to 24 hours. So again, that's an asymptomatic kid. Uh, it needs a pretty long, uh, you know, uh, OBS time. So you, I guess you could do that in the OBS unit or you could admit them for that. Um, so that's, that, that's, again, this is a little bit different than our other meds. We're going really beyond the six-hour time point of this, 12 to 24 hours, a little bit more difficult um, to disposition. So bottom line is busted in terms of one to two pills, but if you get into that sort of six-pill range, you're going to have to watch them for a longer period, 12 to 24 hours, um, and if they're symptomatic, they may have prolonged duration of effects. All right, great. So that, that drug thankfully isn't around as much as it used to be anymore, but a group of drugs that we see all the time, we always wring our hands over how long to watch and what to do with, are the sulfonylurea is probably one of the number one or two prescribed diabetic medications. So I'm going to bring Matt Davy back up to tell us about those. All right, we'll go over uh, sulfonylureas. Um, so you guys know these um, kind of big ones, gliburide, glipizide, um, basically diabetic uh, meds for people that still have uh, working pancreases and basically can cause severe hypoglycemia. So again, same idea. Um, this paper is attempting to define the risk of toxicity for one or two um, tabs. 
Um, so, um, kind of in thinking about all these medicines, it's important to really think about the pharmacokinetics, especially with sulfonylureas. Um, with really the two main um, kind of data points you want to know are the time to peak and then the duration of action. And uh, table one in uh, this paper is kind of a nice uh, layout of the different meds, the different uh, time to peak and the different uh, duration of action. Um, so good kind of reference there. Um, kind of mention the uh, the mechanism real quick. So how they work is basically they inhibit potassium channels on um, uh, pancreatic uh, islet cells, and that causes uh, hyperpolarization, uh, calcium uh, to influx, and basically that causes uh, insulin secretion. Uh, and then additionally, they increase the sensitivity of insulin receptors peripherally. So, they kind of jump into their literature review. Um, and again, most of the data is from kind of retrospective uh, studies, poison center uh, data. Again, susceptible, susceptible to you know, the flaws that we were talking about already. Um, so the papers they looked at, uh, the first one uh, was a retrospective retrospective study of poison control data um, of 70 admitted patients um, that had a sulfonylurea exposure. And basically what they found was that the um, mean onset of hypoglycemia was about 4.3 hours, um, but it had a pretty long range, 0.5 uh, to 16 hours. So that's 16 hours, it's, um, you know, Concerning to us, um, given the kind of the delayed hypoglycemia and th thinking about how long that we need to to watch these, kind of interesting. The uh, sixteen hour uh, patient and those that had delayed onset hypoglycemia, those uh, that developed hypoglycemia after eight hours, they're actually all placed on prophylactic uh, dextrose infusion and really didn't get hypoglycemic, uh, you know, until the uh, uh, dextrose in infusion was stopped. So kind of thinking that this, um, you know, placing a patient on um, prophylactic uh, dextrose infusion can potentially uh, both mask uh, early onset hypoglycemia and then also lead to increased insulin secretion. Um, and then probably the, probably the other most important um, kind of point from this poison center study that they quote is that um, kids one to four years old um, did get sick or hypoglycemic with, with just one tab. Um, they quote uh, Spiller and Al, um, who did the only prospective observational study. Uh, they had 185 patients, uh, 10 months to 11 years, and they found 54 of these patients be uh, became hypoglycemic, and then 53 out of the 54 um, or hypoglycemic within the eight hours. And then the one patient, again, who developed late-onset hypoglycemia uh, had also received prophylactic dextrose infusion prior to uh, becoming hypoglycemic. In terms of fatalities, uh, there's only one reported death, and that was of a two-year-old who was basically found playing with a, an extended-release glipizide, but then was later found uh, uh, in status epilepticus and found uh, to have cerebral edema and later died. Uh, that was the one, the one um, 
case fatality that they quote. So <clears throat> they kind of lay out their treatment algorithm for, for these patients and how to, how to manage them. And so basically for kids um, who have a normal sugar greater than 60, uh, they're recommending, and as, as do we, just expected management, not placing them on uh, prophylactic uh, dextrose, but instead just getting Q1 hour uh, sugars and then watching them uh, until the, you know, the time to peak and a little bit more. If uh, for glucose less than 60, obviously giving uh, IV or PO glucose depending on uh, the patient's mental status and, and then <clears throat> again depending on their response um, uh, starting a glucose infusion once they've proven that they uh, have been hypoglycemic. And then for those refractory cases Probably defined as you know two episodes of hypoglycemia, starting them on octreotide. Um, so, kind of in conclusion, the recommendations. Um, obviously, obsing these uh, patients for for eight hours um, with frequent glucose checks, trying to avoid the de uh, prophylactic dextrose infusion, um, and then. That's for most of the sulfonylureas, and then the extended release glipizide um, has a, a much more delayed uh, time to peak, and so we'll need to watch these guys uh, for much longer. And so, kind of in terms of um, kind of one to two pill causing fatality, um, there's one kind of suspicious case, um, but it's really probably one to two pills causes uh, morbidity, hypoglycemia, rather than. Uh, uh, Mortality. And so stuff we worry about is a annually almost 2,000 exposures per year. So something you're all going to see in practice. Um, they recommend setting all children in. We sometimes, depending on the situation, through our poison center, we'll say maybe around the edge of uh, different is if their parents have a glucose monitor at home and they're willing to use it on their child, and it's during the day, and uh, the kid's able to eat. Sometimes we watch a select few of these single pill ingestions at home, provided it wasn't the XL preparation or the short preparation. But in general, I think that the norm throughout the country is to send most of these kids in for glucose monitoring. I think the one caveat is they don't all need D5 or D10 drips. In fact, that may make things worse and put off their episode of hypoglycemia to the time when you stop the drip and then they get rebound uh, stimulation at that point. But um, definitely a common one that we see a lot. For the next two substances, we're not really talking about pills, but liquids. So we have to change our one or two pills to one or two sips. And Peter's going to talk about these two substances. First up is oil of wintergreen methyl salicylate. As Zane said, the first one up is uh, methyl salicylate, which probably should be broken up into oil of wintergreen, um, Asian supplements, and then the, all of our topical liniments, oils, and other things that we've been using. Um, we've got a nice long history of salicylates in the United States, and they start off by telling us about changes for pediatric dosing. We moved down to 81 milligram tablets just for children specifically, and then adding into the 1970s, adding on tamper-resistant, um, excuse me, child-resistant packaging other things to go along with it. 
Um, but of most interest to us, again, is still the non-aspirin salicylates, the methyl salicylate um, that we do find in creams, our ointments, our lotions, and our liniments as well. Um, FDA regulations now at this point, you have to label anything that has greater than 5% methyl salicylate with a conspicuous warning against its use other than as directed. So in other words, don't eat this, only rub it on your skin. Um, oil of wintergreen is the one that we are most concerned about because this tends to be 98% methyl salicylate. It's highly potent. Um, if you take a look, just one milliliter of oil of wintergreen is equivalent to 1,400 milligrams of aspirin. Um, so one teaspoon, your standard five milliliters of oil of wintergreen, is the equivalent of seven grams of aspirin. Given that, you know, you normally take 325 as an adult, that seems fairly high. Uh, the ingested toxic dose uh, suggested for aspirin we have is 150 milligrams per kilogram with serious toxicity being possible in the 3 to 500 milligram range. So if you take that for your average child weighing at about 23 kilograms um, and take 5 milliliters, that's 7 grams divided by 23 kilograms, comes out to approximately 300 milligrams per kilogram, which would be, your average, which would be a toxic dose in your average 6-year-old child. Um, there are numerous compounds that we do have that contain methyl salicylate. Again, the one that's our, ones that are most concerning are oil of wintergreen, our Kung Yik Hung Thar oil, or K-Y-H-F-O oil, or red flower oil, which is also contains about 67% of methyl salicylate. We do find methyl salicylate in things like Icy Hot, and as well as uh, joint and pain relief cream that's usually around 30%, and then even down into lower into 15% for Kwanlun Medicaid oil. Um, salicylate toxicity has definitely been observed in both an ingestion as well as in mixed ingestion and uh, dermal exposures for salicylate-containing compounds. One of the things that is most worrisome is that methyl salicylate apparently tastes very good. Loyal wintergreen tastes good and has a pleasant odor, which may be something that attracts children to it. Um, we should all remember our symptoms of salicylate toxicity, so I will skip over that, as well as our treatment. Um, again. Like all the other cases, they did a uh, very good uh, literature review extending all the way back into the 1940s when most of these cases occur. Um, there's a large case study by Stevenson that reports quite a few deaths um, and deaths in amounts as little as 4 milliliters of exposure per child. Um, most of the treatments have changed since then. A lot of them have unspecified treatment as well as induced emesis. Uh, when we move up to about the 1960s or so, we start to see the use of dialysis, exchange, transfusion, and transfusion as well, which gives us a pretty good increase in survivability, as well as our now known standard treatment of sodium bicarbonate to assist as well. Um, yeah. Stevenson did report about 20 pediatric exposures, aging from one month to four years, of which only five of those patients survived, so about a 75% mortality rate, and the lowest reported doses were four milliliters in two children, age 17 months and two years old, as well as five milliliters in two additional cases of an 11 month old and a two year old. Uh, also note the smallest lethal dose that was reported in an adult occurred in a 21 year old man who died after consuming six milliliters of oil of wintergreen. Again, kind of giving more credence to the fact that it's a pretty lethal agent. Um, the inclusion at that point was that only four or five can definitely be poisonous uh, if taken internally. Since then, we've had uh, two AAPCC reports. There have been several cases with fatal doses up to 10 milliliters in a two-year-old child and 15 milliliters in another two-year-old child. Another grouping of fatalities uh, 
and other fatalities are sparsely reported within the literature. From 83 to 90, there were four deaths from methyl salicylate compared with only two deaths reported from aspirin during that same time period, uh, again, all in children. Um, one of the big hang-ups for all of this is the estimated parental volumes. Um, most of them are being reported by their parents. I think my child only got a teaspoon. I think they only got a swish or swallow, um, which is not accurate at all <laughs> and, and, and can make it very difficult to determine how much they, they've taken in. Um, of note, um, more recently, we've also seen an increase in the survivability of uh, increased doses with survivability up in the 15 to 20 milliliter range, probably again due to our improvement in supportive care. Um, currently, the evaluation recommendations for us with several well-documented cases of uh, toxicity between 5 to 15 milliliters would suggest that we should send nearly everybody in. And with the ability for us to easily check solicit levels, there's no reason that we shouldn't. Um, of note, we like to use a conversion. There is a conversion for methyl salicylate to standard salicylate with multiplication of 1.4. So if you take whatever ingested amount that you have, um, multiply by 1.4, and that will give you the aspirin equivalents for figuring it out. An example provided is take a 15 milligram child, who, 15 kilogram child, who uh, ingested five mils of the 18.3 Bengay or, uh, cream. That comes out to 183 milligrams per milliliter. Um, five milliliters ingested, that gives us a total ingestion of 915 milligrams of methyl salicylate. Using our conversion factor, multiplying 915 by 1.4, we get up to 1,281 milligrams of aspirin. Um, divide that by the estimated child's weight of 15, now we are at 85 milligrams per kilogram. And that is well below our estimated toxic dose of 150 milligrams per kilogram. Again, just because these people can experience life-threatening toxicity, um, most of them uniformly experienced emesis within the first several minutes, this first several hours, followed by a change in CNS toxicity. Um, would recommend that they are at least observed for at least six hours in some area where they can do an advanced pediatric airway. Um, conclusion for this one is I would say when we're talking about oil of wintergreen as well as some of the other supplements, I would say that's confirmed. Um, for the intermediate ones, I don't know. I'd go somewhere between busted and plausible. I think you'd have to eat a lot of Bengay to get toxic. And, and going back to that article, I can't believe it's not toothpaste. <laughs> yeah. So you got to if you just brush your teeth with a tube of uh, Bengay, you're probably going to be okay. But if you kids sitting there and chugging down the whole thing because it tastes really tasty, then I think we're in uh, trouble. I, I think one of the key points is parents are horrible at estimating how much was in a swallow of anything, and so we tend to play conservatively, especially with the oil of wintergreen that, and as we know, as little as a couple of cc's is enough to do it. So. That's clearly within the realm of a swallow for a child. The other thing that comes up is camphorated oil, which used to be really bad, but there's other versions of it. So talk about that, Peter. All right. Coming up with camphor, this is something that we've used for an exceedingly long history as well in Chinese medicines going back to the, quote, Middle Ages. It continues to be found in a number of non-prescription medications. Um, there have been many cases of camphor-related toxicity that have been found in the pediatric population. Um, again, most of them dating back to the 19th and early 20th centuries. Camphorated oil, which is about 20% camphor, has been a product that's been most responsible for the toxicity, um, most, most often from unintentional exposure. 
Um, has similar packaging and name to cod liver and castor oils and some other cough syrups, so often administered mistakenly by parents or caregivers for that reason. Um, traditionally, it is just meant for topical use, and oral administration, uh, again, does occur when you confuse it with something else. Uh, problem is compounded by the amount of toxicity that does occur. Um, in a report back in 82, the benefits of camphorated oil were found to be so insignificant that the FDA actually essentially pulled it off the market unless you've got 11% or less camphorated oil in your product. Out there now, what we can still find are products um, containing up to 11%, including Tiger Balm, Campho, Thinink, Vicks Vapor Rub being the most common one, Theraflu Vapor as well, and some other joint relief creams and other things. Camphor was originally obtained from the distillation of bark from a camphor tree. Now we normally get it from turpentine oil. Um, it is exceedingly lipophilic, has a very large volume of distribution, and gets absorbed very rapidly through um, mucous membranes. Um, it has been used if having medicinal benefits supposedly as a local anesthetic, an antipyretic, antiseptic, and uh, as a mild expectorant. It's currently limited to topical and vaporized administration only. Uh, oral administration is always to be avoided. Um, many of these medications just include rubs that are rubbed on the chest, arms, make you feel better. Um, you get the typical heat anesthesia, as well as this pungent aroma that makes you think that something is happening. Uh, <laughs> Burrow et al. did a study <laughs> with patients with respiratory complaints, and uh, it had them smell camphor, eucalyptus, and menthol, and it had absolutely no effect on airflow resistance whatsoever. Though everyone seemed to think that they were that they were breathing better. Uh, toxicity most often results from the oral ingestion, but of course there have been reports of dermal inhalation exposure as well, as well as one adult with nasal drops. Um, most often toxicity appears within the first five to ninety minutes from following the ingestion. Um, of note, it's usually pretty easy to identify whomever has gotten in the camphor because of the smell. Um, usually it's the smell of the patient from their emesis or from their gastric washing or even from the urine specimen will smell like camphor. Um, usually clinical toxicity occurs within the 24 hours, but they can continue to have residual findings for days or even weeks to follow. Gastrointestinal symptoms predominate, such as burning of the mouth and throat, nausea and vomiting. Uh, in several cases, pallor with lip cyanosis was frequently reported. Neurologic complaints include irritability, hyperreflexia, tonic muscular contractions, myoclonic jerks, confusions, coma, apnea. The thing that we worry the most about are seizures. Those are often the first manifestation of toxicity and often again occur within the first 24 hours. Um, in those cases that result in death, demise seems to be from the result of respiratory failure or status epilepticus. Uh, Management still here is the same ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation, and management of uh, seizures as you would. Vital signs should, of course, be monitored closely. Um, there's concern because it itself can cause fever or maybe an underlying infection causing the fever that you find. Um, rapid absorption seems to limit the effectiveness of anything that you can do in terms of gastric decontamination. In theory, you should be able to adsorb camphor to activated charcoal, but at least in one animal study, that really did not seem to bear out. Um, there's mention of some large ingestions that underwent gastric lavage as well. Um, other treatments can also include dialysis um, with charcoal hemoperfusion, which there have been some small groups reported on that, 
and it seems that they were at least able to bring down the plasma level and have resolution of, if nothing else, seizures, but without resolution of other symptoms and without, without long-term improvement for the patient. Um, it has also been suggested that barbs may be your uh, anti-seizure medication of choice, although that, again, has not really borne out. There's, of course, some animal data to support this and a few cases that say, yes, we gave them barbs, it went better, but there are just as many cases to say, we gave them barbs, it didn't work, we tried benzos, we tried other stuff, that seemed to work. Um, based on a 2001 report from the AAPCC, there were approximately 8,500 exposures, of which 76% occurred in children under the age of 6. These numbers have remained well, relatively unchanged. There was only one pediatric fatality found in all these same reports. Um, this case was a 5-year-old who died before hospitalization after exposure to camphor and menthol. Of course, there's no other history that's reported to go along with it. Uh, information suggests that fatality is very likely low, and one study demonstrated that only 29% of poison-related deaths are reported to the poison center, so there may, in fact, be more camphor-related deaths that are just being missed. Um, from 1985 to 1989, there were 33 cases of life-threatening toxicity in children as a result of camphor ingestion. Um, exposure and resultant toxicity seem to be an ongoing risk in the pediatric population. Uh, Literature says it just kept several case reports and several case series involving camphor intoxication, but no empiric studies to go along with it. Uh, there are several cases that are reported here. Um, most notably, uh, there's one, there's a nice Ben's report that's quote classic, is representative of the cases. And at this point, uh, local children's institution gave the quote inmates one to one and a half tablespoons, so approximately one and a half to 2.25 grams of camphorated oil, thinking that it was castor oil. Children were ages 4 to 10, with the younger children receiving the lower doses. Symptoms began in 45 minutes, and 20 of the children were vomiting and seizing shortly after. Uh, the author immediately impressed with the odor of camphor as he entered the room. The child who, the child who was most severely affected was, quote, unconscious and rigid with his head thrown back, the lips were intensely cyanotic. The patient was tachycardic with shallow respirations. There were tetanic contractions of the masseters, cervical rigidity, and arm showed tonic contraction. These symptoms persisted for 20 hours, and by 29 hours post-ingestion, the child appeared well. Of all the cases that were reviewed, only two toxic ingestions provided a weight-specific camphor exposure of 63 milligrams and 300 milligrams per kilogram. Um, from the discussions that have been had and from the previous studies, it has been suggested that anywhere between 5 to 100 milligrams, 1,000 milligrams, excuse me, uh, represents a potentially toxic dose in a toddler and in an adult, 2 grams or more. Uh, this makes for a very wide weight-specific range and makes it a little bit more difficult to evaluate to the patient. Um, removing camphorated oils and oil products containing greater than 11% from the marketplace occurred back in 1985. Um, at that point in time, 33 pediatric cases were reported. Um, five of these cases included products containing greater than 11%. Uh, since then, the number of camphor-related toxicities reported to the poison centers has decreased. Is this, a, is this a result of a decrease in the overall use or a decrease in the actual amount of camphor in products? No one seems to know. Of note, you can still go to other countries and find it with 20 and 25%. At this point in time, any child that um, has taken in greater than a gram um, should definitely be evaluated. 
there's some wiggle room as to when the 500 to 1 gram range, but per these authors, the recommendation is that if they have taken more than suspected 500 milligrams, they should come in for a minimum of a three hours of observation, given that symptoms usually will have onset in five to 90 minutes. And yeah, that is it. On this one, I would say, say plausible, if you can eat a lot of camphorated product or happen to have camphorated oil sitting around your home. Yeah, excellent. For both of these, these are ones where our nurses or pharmacists and other poison centers are doing the calculations. So we need to know the exact product when you call in. We can figure out from our database what percentage of salicylate or methyl salicylate or camphor it is. And if it breaches these thresholds, which are not critical to for you all to remember, but they're there. We have them in our database. Then we're going to send them in. The big one that we would send by 911 is camphor because they start seizing and less than 30 minutes, you don't want to have that with the kid in the, in the back of the car. I mean, the good news, since camphorated oil's been off the market, we don't see a lot of it, but it's not hard to buy concentrated products in Canada and um, essentially bring them here from, from elsewhere. I'm going to finish up with a couple of other ones. Um, one, the next one is quinine and quinidine. Uh, quinine, of course, is used for um, malaria and tonic water. Um, it used to be used for um, leg cramps in adults. The FDA took it off the market because, like many of the drugs we talked about, it doesn't work for that. Um, quinidine was an antiarrhythmic, which also we don't see very much used anymore. It used to be used for atrial and particular arrhythmias since the 1920s. Um, and it also had something called quinidine sympathy. If you listen to our last journal club about long QT, to see why the prescriptions of that has decreased in light of many other antiarrhythmics being available. Um, so the big problems with these are cardiotoxicity with QRS widening, QT widening, um, particular arrhythmias, bundle branch block, and ultimately fatal uh, arrhythmias. So for quinine, uh, the entity of taking too much of that is called a chinconism. It's derived from the bark of the chinchona tree. And it is often on a list of a one-pill control uh, medication. But uh, there's really poor support for this. Um, when Gideon Coronary mentioned, wrote the first article, went back 10 years later with a colleague, Bar Ards, and reported only um, a fatal dose would be 80 milligrams per kilogram, which is a pretty large amount, larger than you would find in, in a tablet. Among the 37 cases of quinine ingestion, of less than a gram, and these were both adults and children, over half, half were asymptomatic. Of the 19 toddlers, um, 13 ingested less than a gram, two ingested between one gram and five grams, and only two of these 19 had any symptoms, were vomiting and drowsy, but certainly not lethal. Um, there are 11 more cases in a different series. Um, many of those remain asymptomatic. There were five toddlers as well as four other reported in single case reports that had serious toxicity uh, with ingestion of as little as two pills or more. Uh, four of these toddlers um, died uh, from quinine toxicity, and they probably presumptively from hypoxia-induced uh, pulseless ventricular tachycardia. There's a single case report in a toddler suffering serious toxicity equivalent of two tablets of quinine. So for a quinine... Plausible, but since it's not around very much anymore, very unlikely um, 
that it will cause serious life-threatening toxicity. Procortinine, um, despite being a drug that's indicated for cardiac uh, um, disease and has quite a serious side effect profile, there are no cases of serious quantity overdoses in toddlers. There's one fatal exposure reported in that 20-year review of the National Poison Center database from 83 to 2002. It was a two-year-old who died in 1984, and the dose and the details are not available. Um, so uh, once again, although the risks are you can have first-degree, second-degree, bundle branch blocks, QT prolongation, potentially torsades, the number of cases where this occurred is low. Um, as far as recommendations, um, it is um, approximately a dose of about 10 milligrams per kilogram seems to be the threshold for quinine where we would send it in. And anyone symptomatic or has cardiac changes, we would continue to, to monitor. Um, interestingly enough, part of the concept of chinconism with quinine can be transient blindness. And there have been anecdotal case reports where IV nitrites have been used to vasodilate the vasculature in the brain and reverse that. Usually the blindness will resolve on its own. And certainly in all, any case reports in kids where this occurred, um, this has been very, very, very infrequent. I'm going to finish up with the last one. I'm sorry we're, we're over by a minute or two, but I'll try to summarize this one. These are the anti-malarial drugs, chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. And in fact, this is the article that actually started this whole uh, thought process because we recently had a child who got into it. And up to then, I always worried about these. These were, in fact, in my mind, the one pill that could kill. But there are pediatric doses for both of these products. So there's chloroquine. Uh, which is an antiparasitic, anti-malarial, comes as chloroquine phosphate as a drug called Aralin, and the tablet size is 250 and 500, and clearly that's a toxic dose for many children. Hydroxychloroquine, sometimes used for rheumatologic diseases, it comes as a sulfate salt, and it comes as Plaquenil, and there have been less data on how that reacts to children. What makes these drugs really scary is they're like really bad tricyclics that seize and become hypotensive very quick onset. So you're managing multiple things at once when they do get symptomatic. They tend to have YQRS from sodium channel blockade. They tend to get vasodilated and get hypotensive. They tend to get profoundly hypokalemic, needing potassium infusions. And they tend to have seizures that are refractory that often need high-dose benzodiazepine infusions or nowadays propofol or something else is to... Um, manage them. So when they do happen, at least in adults, they're very scary. The fact is there's only been a handful of, of cases in children to go on, and because of that, it's all, these are clearly on the one pill can kill list, especially with chloroquine, which is often a once-weekly drug which we can use for anti-malarial. There's a table there of about a dozen cases with fatalities, and so clearly we know it occurs. The one of the risk factors in evaluating these kids is that the more hypokalemic they get, the more likely they have, are to have the other manifestations. And often if their potassium is below 3, that's usually a bad prognostic sign that they're going to do have either arrhythmias or seizures. So again, um, Poison Center has reported about uh, 1,200 of these cases per year. Um, so they do happen. Um, it's got a very low margin of safety. Um, and their bottom line, to wrap things up, are these are potentially lethal drugs. One or two tablets in the pediatric population 
clearly can be fatal. And again, I think for that one, it's confirmed. So out of our 14 drugs, about half of them, maybe not as toxic as we believed as one pill can kill. Some of them clearly are. If you remember nothing else, poison center number is 1-800-222-1222. We're glad to do the calculations and talk you through the management of these. And I um, thank you for your time and attention and sitting through these uh, cases with us. If anyone's interested in writing these up, I don't know if they're still doing the case series. A small hats off to the editors of the case series, Jeffrey Love and uh, Lissell Curtis at Georgetown and Wendy Kleinschartz uh, at Maryland Poison Center who were the editors for this series of 14 uh, substances. Um, I don't know if they're continuing to do this. The last one seems to be published in like 2007. But there's lots of other new drugs that have been out there since then. So if someone has a thought about that, um, we can certainly uh, work on a new one pill can kill. So thank you all.